welcome to a special edition of Battleground Wisconsin. This is our pre-Thanksgiving special. It's only me, Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Priscilla Bort and Matt Brusky are off for this podcast, but I am not alone. We're going to have two really fantastic guests. First off, we're going to have Congressman Mark Pocan, Democrat from Madison. He has been in the media taking a leadership role on the Palestinian-Israeli crisis, the crisis in Gaza. And he and, and 24 colleagues have signed a very good letter to President Biden uh, calling for a ceasefire. And what we're going to hear about and what the reason we're having the congressman on is because he is taking a nuanced position that tries to express the full complexity of the situation and defend the humanity and the rights of both sides while understanding how horrendous what Hamas did on October 7th is. So we're going to have that conversation first. Then we're going to shift gear to state politics, and we're going to have Senator Chris Larson, friend of the show. Uh, he was the leader of the fight to hold up a very unbalanced half-billion-dollar public subsidy to the billionaire owner of the Milwaukee Brewers, Mark Antonazian, uh, which just went through the Senate under amazing bipartisan pressure. And so Chris is going to give us the recap of that, and I'm sure we will get into other major things going on in the state legislature as it begins to close down its work heading into the holidays. So that will be our show today, a, d- a deep dive into the, the biggest national, international story going on right now, and then a, and then a deep dive into the, the most uh, controversial issue going on in state politics in, in recent weeks. So leading off, we are pleased to welcome Congressman Mark Pocan, a uh, Democratic congressman from Madison, uh, mem- a strong member, leader, leading member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Um, and a friend of Citizen Action, former board member when he was a state legislator, and uh, perhaps before when he was on the Dane County Board. Mark, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Robert. Mark, to my mind, has been taking um, a very courageous position on what's happening in, in, in Israel and Gaza right now uh, with the conflict. And Mark, I, I really appreciate the leadership because problem with our politics and with this kind of long-term conflict is that um, it's a black and white issue often, and that's the problem. That's why there's conflict. And you're doing nuance and looking at both sides and talking about what would settle this and understand and talking about humanity and your colleagues who signed a letter that came out yesterday, which I'll let you talk about, uh, are talking about uh, humanity of both sides and what is necessary, both recognizing that what Hamas did on October 7th is shocking, unbelievable, inhumane, unjustifiable, and the largest uh, mass killing of Jews since the Holocaust, but that the, there's also a great concern about the disproportionate response of the uh, right-wing uh, Israeli government, uh, which is aimed at the entire uh, people of Gaza, not only Hamas. We're just saying that up. I, uh, uh, can you talk about uh, the position you've been staking out, the letter with, I believe, 23 other members of Congress uh, that just came out, and how you see the current situation in conflict, uh, Congressman? There's a lot to it, right? But I think what you just said was probably the most significant core of it all. Uh, you know, people like white and black issues. You know, there's red team and blue team. Um, there's not when it comes to conflicts, especially this conflict. Um, you know, going back into history, you could go back hundreds of years and get lost in minutia, uh, or you can look at the immediate situation there. And, you know, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of, uh, of problems that have gotten us to this point. You know, I've been mildly obsessed on Gaza since my second trip uh, to the Middle East, and I've been there three times. And on that second trip, you know, I started hearing some things that really made me concerned. And on my third trip, couple years ago, uh, got even more concerned. And, you know, we've been trying to raise the issue that, you know, Gaza in many ways was a boiling pot waiting to spill over, um, you know, due to people couldn't come and go as they pleased. 2.3 million people, of which 1.2 million people were on food assistance uh, with UNRWA, the UN. Um, You know, they were helping to educate 300,000 kids and they had clinics and other things. Hamas technically was the government in Gaza, but the leadership actually lives in Qatar um, or Qatar. 
So uh, bottom line is it, it's been complex for a long time and I won't go into that. I'll keep to what we're talking about now. But the October 7th um, attack by uh, Hamas was clearly horrific, um, unjustifiable uh, in every sense uh, of the word. And um, Israel had a right to go at Hamas. That's, you know, rules of warfare and, and how things happen. The problem is in the response, it's been um, stronger uh, and, and far broader than I think most of us look at. Um, as you know, a, a surgical attack. Uh, instead of using a scalpel, uh, it appears at best a blunt axe and maybe a baseball bat is being used to to do the surgery. And and that is uh, becoming, I think, over eleven thousand people killed, over forty five hundred kids. Clearly, kids are not Hamas uh, in Gaza killed. Um, and you know, causing a situation where over half the population has had to move around within the country. A third of the buildings have been demolished or severely damaged in northern Gaza. Um, you know, the response has been anything but surgical. And because of it, I think more and more of us in Congress are just speaking out and saying, "Look, we need a either a stop stop the bombing immediately, so we can, you know, go back to what." Israel has a right to do is have, you know, uh, ability to go after Hamas, but not a, a collective punishment, which is a term I use and I embrace because I do believe this is a collective punishment of all Palestinians living in Gaza that's happening right now. We're even seeing things happen in the West Bank, and that's a whole other conversation now, but clearly that just shows some of the ongoing problems. But we want to stop, you know, the, the cessation of, of hostilities uh, set up a process for a ceasefire because eventually it either ends because it's been flattened to a parking lot or there's a ceasefire. So everyone who is nervous about the word ceasefire, that's how things end, right? So we all should be for an eventual ceasefire. Um, but we've got to stop this, what even the president used the word indiscriminate bombing, uh, talking about hospitals. We've got to stop that, get focused. What is the end game? I'm not sure that the Israelis have an end game plan uh, on what to do. But certainly, um, if you respect human life, period, you have to respect the lives of the Israelis who are attacked and are still being um, facing, you know, bombs coming out of Gaza, as well as the Palestinians who live in Gaza, who've unfortunately been under a lot of pressures for honestly decades. I mean, yeah, the, the numbers are shocking. You've been to Gaza a couple times. I haven't been to Gaza, actually, Robert. I've been to oh, the region. The region. A okay. number of Congress has been in in there since Keith Ellison went over 10 years ago. Okay. That's the problem. I was denied twice when I was there and I had just gotten permission from the Israeli government in September to go. I would have been the first person in a decade to go because we do spend money both with UN to help feed people and, and educate kids in Gaza, but also we spend money with Israel and it's appropriate that a member of Congress be able to go. And then the what happened on October 7th happened. So clearly I won't be able to be uh, able to go now. But um, that's the problem is this has been uh, an issue that's just been a boiling pot that has not gotten the international attention it's needed. Conditions were probably as bad as Syria or Yemen in many ways um, for the, the living conditions in Gaza. And, you know, I, I guess none of us should be surprised that, at some point, a pot was going to boil over. How that was going to happen, no one really knew. But um, there's certainly plenty uh, of characters and issues that don't make this white and black. And none of this is, you, you and I agree, justify what Hamas did um, or legitimize it in any way. Hamas did collective punishment themselves. And in fact, they collectively assassinated or kidnapped uh, a number of people in liberal kibbutzes that are peace activists that actually opposed to the uh, policies, of, policies of Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud. So that was indiscriminate. Anyone who's in Israel who's Jewish is fair game, and that is abhorrent. Um, well, and but, the conditions in Gaza, partially, um, yes, as part of it, it's the blockade by Israel, and there's a couple um, gates uh, with Egypt, but it's also the Hamas government. I mean, the Hamas government, even though, again, there's complicity back and forth uh, with the Israeli government on, on allowing Hamas to kind of have the control in many ways, but the, the leadership doesn't even live in Gaza because they don't want to live there. Uh, the, the the head of UNRWA in Gaza, a guy named Tom White, an Australian, um, told us when we were there last uh, in, in Israel that conditions were just bearable enough that you could survive in Gaza, but that was about it. It was just surviving. And, you know, if, if you really are the government leadership there, the fact that 90 
to 95% of the water is undrinkable. Uh, the fact that they can't even feed people, that UNRWA is feeding 1.2 million people a day of the 2.3 million people. I mean, clearly, Hamas has also taken advantage of the people of Gaza for many, many years. And 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 you, you've done a great job of talking about context, talking about the nuance of this, right? Um, and I, I understand that originally, right after October 7th, there was sensitivity to people who immediately moved to context because it seemed to... To, to, to those folks as not recognizing the horror that just happened, right, um, mm -hmm. in Israel. Um, but we do eventually, because we want to uh, create uh, just justice and rights for all people, for Palestinians and Israelis, to, to back up and think about how we got there and where it's resolved. And why I really liked the line in, your le in the letter you and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other members of Congress just sent to President Biden was it said war cannot be the answer. In other words, we've had an Israeli government, which is not all Israeli people, not all Jews at all. That's why anti-Semitism is a completely is a serious threat and problem and real and is completely, a, a, you know, an illegitimate response to what's going on. Just like we, we should all be collectively punished in the U.S. Whatever Donald Trump does, for example, would be the analogy. But they didn't want a two-state solution. They have been ignoring uh, uh as you as you hinted at uh Hamas even even encouraging it being there initially um during the 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 the, the uh W Bush era because they they're trying to undermine the Palestinian uh, liberation organization getting to the point where they can legitimately get a two state solution but in fact only a political settlement can can make both Israelis and Palestinians safe and guarantee them their rights. Uh, I, I took that to, and that and that just more war, more devastation will just set up this cycle where this keeps happening decade at year after year, decade after decade. Yeah, you know, in fact, I I say it this way because I've been there three different groups, three different times that in the eleven years I've been in Congress. Um, I have in general, I would say, Israelis and Palestinians are kind of the victims of both the Israeli government, specifically the Netanyahu government, and uh, the Hamas government, uh, specifically in Gaza. And um, in some ways, even the Palestinian Authority, uh, we prop them up, uh, you know, when really they're not necessarily in contact with the people. But Israelis and Palestinians want peace. They want to live in peace. And I think there is more support for a two-state solution um, than elsewhere. It's the Netanyahu government that has brought in a number of extremists. And of course, he has to stay in government or he may go to prison, right? So that's an extra card for him in all of this. Um, and Hamas has been awful to both the people that they allegedly govern in, in Gaza, as well as uh, you know the attacks that they've been doing for years and years and years uh, on Israel. So in, in many ways, I find the Israelis and the Palestinians have far more in common as people uh, and I find Hamas and Benjamin Yahoo's government have far more in common than you'd think uh, as you start looking at this dynamic. And, you know, I, I think the United States does need to do a more active role. We've been asking for years and the president just did it. And I appreciate that, a special envoy to give the region more attention. But, you know, after my last trip there, that definitely uh, was was one of the things I came back with that, you know, we needed to. Um, be more active. And I think, you know, if nothing else, maybe it's a silver lining out of, of this. And I know that sounds odd to say, but, you know, I've heard more people talk about a two-state solution than I've had uh, recently. And I think, you know, the United States maybe getting involved in a way that can be helpful will will be good. No one wants this the, this horror, this kind of tragedy on both sides, but the the only thing possibly they could good could come good from it is trying to prevent it from ever happening again and finally getting a political settlement uh, uh, between the two parties. Uh, in the letter, uh, Congressman, you also and your colleagues talked about the risk of a wider war. It seems like I, that would be something very unpopular among the American people. And I don't think there's an understanding of how uh, the disproportionate response to Gaza, you and I agree on that, even though Israel has every right to defend itself and to go after Hamas, but there are rules of war as well, right? And they're just wars. Mm -hmm. um, but what, how this plays among average Arab people and um, other Muslims around the world and how that uh, really escalates the possibility of a much broader conflict that uh, we're drawn into. 
So one of the standards I use at any international issue, especially if it's going to be around war and peace, is I don't want to ever have to send young American men and women into harm's way um, if we don't have to. And, you know, Israel is an ally on, on most every level with the United States. So if there was a regional conflict, it is far more likely that we would wind up talking about sending people in. But I would much rather us figure out a solution to not have to get to the point that you're sending young American uh, men and women who are soldiers into harm's way. Uh, right now, by doing an overreaction, you're hearing from many of the, the nations and, and groups like Hezbollah and, and Iran that that's what could get them to be more actively involved. Hezbollah has way more uh, soldiers and military might than Hamas could ever dream of having, and that would start a regional conflict. So, you know, we again think this this blunt instrument uh, surgery that's going on by Israel, what really, again, it looks like collective punishment of Palestinians in Gaza is actually counterproductive to peace in the long term. And therefore, we have a concern about that as well. And I'll, I'll say this before asking, because I, I there's something else you've been talking about. I wanted you to, to talk about here. Um, I mean, my my grandfather, who's not Jewish, barely escaped the Holocaust, the Gestapo. He was trying to help as a liberal uh, cleric and theologian there, American. My great grandfather's Ukrainian Jewish, and that my that whole part of my family, my half, it was only not in the Holocaust because he had emigrated the United States before it happened, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, the 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 way of anti-Semitism saddens me, but it also saddens me to think that all that that Jew that 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 supporting Israel, supporting uh, Jews and their rights somehow has to be equated with Benjamin Netanyahu's foreign policy. But I think we have that in our country. You have spoken out against one of the most powerful interests in, is in D.C., and I've dealt with them back in the 90s, APAC, who has been trying to take out progressive leader, pro progressive Democrats in primaries who, are, who do not walk the line and insists on a far-right um, Israeli line, a Likud, you know, their conservative party line. And uh, you have called that out uh, recently in, in this discussion because they're making it very difficult for people to try to be constructive and actually deal with this problem. And it's all its complexity like you and your colleagues. Yeah. So APAC, you know, either I'm one of the dumbest people in Washington, um, which maybe I am on this one, but you know, most people are, are afraid of APAC and that's what they want, fear. What they've done, and we saw this last cycle for the first time ever, where in congressional Democratic primaries, there were two groups that came in with big money, bigger money than the candidates running for the race themselves spent. It was APAC and the cryptocurrency. The cryptocurrency guy just got prosecuted, right? So I think they're out of the picture. APAC is still around. But what they would do is come in and spend millions in a Democratic primary, you know, multiple times what either candidate running in the race actually spent um, and try to essentially make the election an auction and buy it. The problem is it's money raised from big Republican donors that they have spent in Democratic primaries against Democrats. And, you know, I have a problem with that if that was the NRA, if that was the Sackler family, if that was um, Big Pharma, no matter who did that, that skirts campaign finance law in a really, I think, unethical way. So um, but most people are afraid that, you know, APAC could come into their district and do this. I feel that, uh, you know, my district, I've, I've had this conversation with them about APAC for a long time and Russ Feingold, you know, about campaign finance. I think people would understand it. So I've been more than open to take this subject on. But, um, you know, it, it is a problem because any group that comes in and tries to do that is really uh, an attack on democracy and, and we have to speak out. Yeah. And politicizing this debate further just makes it harder for us to be constructive about it. Right and respond to the injustice, and the uh, on both sides. Uh, in, in Absolutely, the, in, and yeah. you know they basically are taking the very conservative Netanyahu position, and and that's part of it. I've also suggested, you know, I came out uh, as an elected official because you can live your life more freely. They should just come out as a conservative organization, and they'll live their life more freely. But don't play in democratic primaries and act as if that's your core values. It's not. And, you know, their money's from big Republican donors. And, you know, we should just they should be exposed for that. I, I actually think at some point um, and it may be this cycle 
that their money will turn out to be toxic in a Democratic primary because we understand what they're really about and where they're raising it from. And it's such a cynical way of trying to participate in the electoral process that it could really backfire. Yeah, and I was working as comm director for a congressional candidate in California in the 90s, and we dealt with APAC, and she was a Quaker. And my conclusion is a, an observant Quaker can't get the APAC endorsement because you can't meet all of their criteria, and they don't care about what your religion is. So it was pretty shocking. But um, I would just want to thank you. I know you have to run, Congressman, because I think Congress leadership is about having the courage to lead and there are people with your position, what you're trying to do with your colleagues that may be unhappy on both sides, but I know you talk to all of them and want to hear their views. But the point is for us to get a, a, a more a, a more complicated, nuanced view of the situation so the United States can play a critical role in resolving it for both sides, for the Palestinians and Israelis. Um, so I really want to thank you for doing that. And, you know, Lyndon Johnson once said when he took pulled the trigger on voting rights, and it was risky. What's the presidency for anyway? I would say what you're doing, Congressman, is what a seat in Congress is for. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, especially with Congress as it currently is with this Republican majority, where we have had what 19 votes to elect a speaker and we can't pass a single appropriation bill. You got to do something. And uh, this is something that hopefully I'm putting my experiences from going to the region and experiences from what the values are, you know, in my district to play. But appreciate the conversation. Absolutely. Appreciate you coming on on short notice and 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 what you're trying to do to, to constructively uh, to, to, for humanity for the human and for the protection of of all the kids, both sides. Uh, so thank you very much. Yep. Thank you. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. And we're following up uh, our conversation with Congressman Mark Pocan with another discussion about leadership. And so Senator Chris Larson, uh, state senator from Milwaukee, who has really been uh, out front on the Milwaukee Brewers half billion dollar subsidy to one billionaire issue, has also been leading based on principle and taking a stand, even if it's unpopular with a lot of powerful people, and even if he knows that he'll take some hits on it. And just for those of you who might miss the headlines, uh, a slightly revised version did go through the state Senate with bipartisan support and bipartisan opposition. And so it is a done deal. And I'll just I want to ask you more broadly about the situation, Chris, about the extraordinary nature of it first before we dig into details. So forest before trees, in a sense. And that is um, it's very unusual when you have. Robin Voss and Tony Evers on the same page and using all the powers of their office and the entire unified corporate elite. For me, it begins as an organizer to show you the real powers that dominate our capital, not, not the people and their interest. And you see that people who you think are antagonists aren't sometimes when a unified corporate elite and a powerful billionaire can spend can spend unlimited sums, the largest lot. We don't even know what they've spent in the second half of the year, but they're by far the largest lobbying effort in the first half of the year. So this is something that's instructive, as disappointing as the result is. So Chris, thank you very much. And I want to first ask you uh, what it was like. Was this different than most legislation? Was this kind of a unique experience to be a leader on it and 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 to see the forces aligned against you from both sides? Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Robert. Thank you for that that praise. And thank you for having me on the podcast once again. Um, and thanks for bringing attention to this important issue from from you and the uh, the members of Citizen Action of, of pushing for the coalition to uh, push for a better deal and keeping public equity front and center. Uh, on this, that is something that that was uh, discussed at great length within uh, our caucus um, and among other Democrats of 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 what the bar was and what it should be uh, for what to expect in terms of public dollars going out and expecting public good in return, uh, and frankly bringing bringing a great deal of of uh, new allies to the table who otherwise wouldn't have thought that this is a uh, this is an issue that affects them. Right. And I think that that is an initial reaction from folks. Um, you know, if you had to summarize where the public is at on this issue, 
Um, for most cases, it would just kind of be a shoulder shrug. And then if they thought about it for a few seconds, their response would be like, well, why do the brewers need money? It seemed like they're doing just fine. I, I could think of a few other places where we could spend that public money or, you know, if it's a private organization another other private organizations that could benefit to a much greater degree. And uh, without citizen action uh, stepping forward and, and bringing uh, a group of allies uh, to speak out and, and who otherwise might not be interested in a ballpark, I don't think that we would have gotten uh, a better deal and, and have been able to change this. So as you're, as you're praising me, I'm going to take that and throw it right back at you and praise you, Robert, and well, praise in action for doing, doing good and changing the debate around what, uh, what we should expect in the public. And before you get into what it was like, let me just, following your lead, also give praise to the other coalition partners, major groups that signed on and, and lent their name to the effort of getting a better deal, not just giving the brewers whatever they decided they wanted, uh, which is a lot of how this debate depressingly went. Um, so the the the, co the signees on to the letter we sent to, sent to the Senate and to the governor were MTEA, Block, um, Vosas de la Frontera, uh, Kids Forward, Wisdom, MTI, which is the big Madison Teachers Union, and REA, which is the big uh, Racine Educators Union. So that is a very good group of strong, progressive, well-known organizations that that did take a stand. Chris, yeah. obviously, they were against the whole lobbying power of the of the of the corporate elite that runs the state. So I'm not saying we obviously were not as strong, but I want to uh, praise them as well. But yeah. I also want to say, what was it like for you and your colleagues being subject to this immense 360 lobbying campaign? Yeah, the uh, I think the it was definitely something that was different. So it was, this was the most money that was spent on lobbying for the first six months of the year was just on the brewers. I think most of that was focused at the governor's office um, because uh, famously it was taken out of the budget. And so then there was an effort to try and move it outside of the budget. Uh, then after that, they, they shifted their attention to the legislature and you could, you could really see what that looked like. Um, you know, we, we, instead of just having one lobbyist, so so just to get an idea, legislators do not hear that much from the public. So if there's anything anybody takes from from listening to this particular podcast, uh, I would say do not give up your voice, use it. So if there's an issue that is important to you uh, in any way, shape or form, especially if there's a bill attached to it, call your legislator or send an email, send a letter. Um, and let them know exactly how you feel, because we do not hear from that many people. And so it's a very easy thing for, for lobbyists to be able to get in the door because we're not hearing that much from the public. And lobbyists are very, very happy to fill in that void and say, you know, look, here's here's what I here's what what is going on based on their perception. And of course, they have a vested interest in in what the outcome is. And in this case, we saw that in, in 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 like amplified. So usually you get one lobbyist who come in and say, yes, here's the issue. Here's what they're, my, my client is trying to see through. In this, this instance, it wasn't just one lobbyist that would come in at a time. It would usually be a whole handful. So they'd, you know, they'd have basically the bandwagon effect of like, oh, isn't this a really great deal? Shouldn't shouldn't this be something you want to move forward with? And they start with easy yeses to say like, well, you know, you want to keep the brewers here. You're a fan of the brewers, aren't you? Yes, certainly. And that could easily transition to, you know, you want to do everything you can to make sure the brewers stay here. Right. And it's like, well, what do you mean? And I think for a lot of legislators, they're, they're, it's it's uh, it, it's something where if they have a group of people who are like cheering them on and saying, oh, yeah, you want to root for the home team. Uh, it's, it's really hard to resist that. Um, and so that would happen repeatedly. And that would happen um, not just not just with one bandwagon of, of people, but uh, uh, it would happen over and over. And so even though the public was so much against this on a seven to one basis, when polled by public policy polling, uh, you know, if, if that's not who's knocking at their door and the person knocking at their door is saying, hey, you, you've got to get this done or the team leaving will be on your shoulders. Um, it's really hard to resist that. So that's what made this very different. The other thing that would that made this very different was that there the 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 partisan divide was scrambled. Um, and if anything, it was divided based off of who who was in higher leadership versus who 
the regular members. And I think that was a, a function of like who was lobbied first and who was brought in first, uh, where the regular members were, were, were wondering, well, why the heck are we moving forward on this when there's so many other things that we should do? Um, but it was a high priority for the leaders of, of both parties in both houses. Um, so that made it different. The other thing that made it made it different was the governor was very much on board with with whatever would happen. So it made our negotiating ability uh, quite a bit tougher. So we had we tried to make our make the best of that. Um, but, you know, those are the things that made it quite, quite different. Um yeah, and man, making reaching across the aisle. I've had more productive conversations with Republicans over the last six months than I had over the last twelve years before that, um, because they they uh, they were getting opposition from uh, very Republican organizations, and they were listening to their constituents as well. So if you notice the the breakdown, there was a higher percentage of Republicans who voted no on this than a, a percentage of of Democrats. Um, and it was for, you know, similar reasons of saying, well, we've got other priorities we should focus on. Um, now granted their priorities are very different than my priorities, but they, uh, they recognized, um, uh, they recognized the, the, the scam when it, when it came to their doorstep. And I was impressed because I testified on both sides, assembly and Senate on the Senate side with Senator Julian Bradley, who's just to the south and west of you, Franklin, who was a big voucher advocate. I mean, over the top. So strongly disagree with him on that. But he was a bright man. He was very engaged and he understood how it was a scam and what the how the scheme works. And I he I thought he was a really bright guy and it was good to have an agreement with him. I assume it won't happen that often because he's, you know, obviously doing something that public education, you and I, Chris, disagree with. But it was very odd to have these strange bedfellows as you said let me ask you and the power of a governor on their own party is larger than people realize uh people often don't want to cross their own governor and it's my observation you tell me if i'm wrong from the outside you're on the inside that state senators and assembly folks on the democratic side seem more reluctant to cross a Democratic governor than say members of Congress or U.S. senators um, are will are more willing to cross uh, President Biden. I mean, is, is that a fair observation, or would you have a more you might have a more nuanced view of it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not uh, paying close attention to everything that's happening in Congress, but I do know that yes, it's there's there's a larger group of people pushing against the president for sure. Um, we just don't see it all that much. It is, it, and, and, you know, I don't know what the function is, why that is, but I don't know. I think one thing that I learned from the Trump administration was that you should speak truth to power regardless of the letter after their name, uh, whether it's a big issue or a small issue. Um, and that, that's a, uh, that, that might not get me in the, the best favor. That might not get me to the, uh, invitations to the governor's residence, um, and other events, but, I'm not there to represent the governor. I love him on a lot of the issues, but when he's wrong, um, if I'm not saying it and others aren't saying it, then he's not going to know that, uh, especially when his constituents are are uh, are missing out on what they could get. So praise him when it when it makes sense, criticize him when it makes sense. And I feel that's very the most American thing that you can do. And I would say you are independently elected you you made a commitment to represent your constituents and you owe them your independent judgment i think as opposed to i mean they, they also elected the governor he should have a say but he shouldn't sure. have both the senate seat and the governor's seat um we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on battleground wisconsin welcome back to battleground wisconsin there are two kind of things i want to get into uh, and you can you can you don't have to take both of them at once. I'm just going to kind of set up the segment, right? The, the, this part of the segment. One is simply as an organizer, I feel like even in disappointments like this, it is a little bit like when I was a kid in the backyard and I loved to pick up the rocks because you saw all the critters underneath the rocks you don't usually see. Sure. So I feel like these situations are like when lightning strikes. Uh, not the, the the fire, just the light of it in pitch dark and you suddenly see the landscape, it lights up. And mm -hmm. that these are a window into power, which me as an organizer means I don't want to lose and have the public interest not serve, but at least I learned something about who's pulling the strings and who has influence and 
can maybe think better about how we change the situation. So that's one positive thing I have. But the other observation I have, and we can kind of mix and match these, is that there seemed to be this weird thing that the Brewers subsidy is somehow its own thing, like sports owners, sports stadiums are distinct from every their field of economic life, where it's very clear, and this is how we thought about it in terms of our history of, of defending and demanding accountable economic development. This is very much like Fox Connor Weedek, what what what, what that like Scott Walker's privatized jobs agency, and we led the opposition to both on the outside. And that is it is a large economic interest, either one billionaire or big corporation, simply shaking down the public for their own private interest. You could get a good deal that's balanced and benefits the public, but you have to negotiate it. And their interest is to get the best deal they can right. for their private interest. And we need to understand that there's been a public interest that I, 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 someone elected to government has an obligation to defend versus a private interest. So it was very strange the way we heard about what the brewers would or would not accept. And yeah. I think it almost was seen as some separate thing from economic development. For me, this was very simple. We developed a lot of standards for accountable economic development that was in the public interest that this deal violates. And I don't see a difference between Foxconn and Mark Antonazian, other than the brewers are more beloved than Fox than some faceless corporation, Foxconn. Am I on that strand? Am I off base on that? Or or what are your thoughts? No, there's definitely I think that's absolutely apt. And I, I think in in a in a sense, it's um one could argue that but the Foxconn for some folks was like, ah, this is a huge company, therefore there's nothing that can be done wrong. Um, mostly for Republicans, right? Because they're like, ah, big business. They are by the power of money, money is moral, therefore they're fine, and uh, we should let them get what they want, and therefore they don't have to follow the same laws. And my gosh, why are those laws at all? Let's change them, right? That's what happened with Foxconn, right? And I think with this, the there is that glow of uh, of the the home team, right? And frankly, the, the fan support was weaponized against legislators. the The argument uh, in in anybody can go back and watch the testimony um, or watch what the public um, coverage was of this. And I feel like there was almost like a clock ticking. You know, the the um, the the Major League Baseball uh, added the pitch clock this uh, this past season uh, just to keep things moving along faster. And I think the Major League Baseball took a lesson on that. And so there there was almost like an internal clock going that whoever was advocating this had to mention that the team might leave every five minutes or they would automatically lose the argument. Um, and nobody wanted to be be um, uh, attacked for that. So it was the the pitch line. Do you support the Brewers? OK, do you want it? You know, this will be a big empty stadium if you don't allow uh, them to be able to get everything they want. Um, and so by by then, it was just a matter of of of, of the uh, Brewers saying these things are red lines. Right. You kind of alluded to that. What were those things? And let me and let me quickly intercede. If you're doing a real estate deal. Yeah. The other side says, we're walking away. You have to like okay. question, are they bluffing me or are they really walking away? And that right. didn't that same kind of level of, of 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 suspicion that you would do in any serious negotiation if you were a businessman, if you were a Republican business person, um, seemed to be absent in this case because of this hometown team kind of aura. Yeah. No, that's it. That's it. And there's like, oh, they possibly might. But if you and again, logically, you you, you know, we talked about this uh, many times before, but there was a book written by uh, Neil DeMoss called Field of Schemes, where he outlines this over and over. So if anyone does a scratch of research, you can discover that this is the same scheme that's done in in uh, ballpark after ballpark, football stadium after football stadium. Right. And basketball arena after basketball arena that they say gosh we're gonna well we're looking at this other real estate and if you uh if you force our hand too much we'll leave uh, we we never really pushed that and frankly there's other teams that are going through the same thing right now and they're calling their bluff they're saying okay if you're gonna go so be it but here's the deal we're offering right the orioles comes to mind where they're looking at just turning over the uh, camden yards over uh, to the Orioles and say, here you go, you can do the maintenance on your own. Uh, we're done covering it for you. You know, Diamondbacks also have a lease that ends this year, and they're still resisting, even though they won the damn championship, they're still uh, resisting giving them public dollars. Um, we never really tested that. 
And I was really hoping we would have been able to do that in the Senate this week by challenging them on a ticket tax or challenging them on a, a additional chunk of cash that would come in from the brewers. Um, but you're right. A lot of legislators ended up towing the line of saying that, well, that's a red line for the brewers. But we never really established what was a red line for us. And frankly, now it kind of opens the door. And this is a dangerous thing, I think, Robert, moving forward and why this fight is so important for us to continue. If we hadn't moved forward with the Bucks deal, and I learned this afterwards, I don't think we would have had Foxconn. I think it made us a very clear mark uh, to be able to say, look, if you if you go there, you flex and you threaten, you'll be able to get what turned out, you know, what could have turned out to be the biggest corporate giveaway in the history of America. Um, frankly, they didn't follow through on it. Um, but I think this sets a tone that now, like sports teams will say, uh, there's no reason why other businesses can't come to the table and say, if you don't give us what we want, uh, and if, and what we want is the the income tax taxes paid by our, by our employees um, to go back into our pocket, then we'll leave. And if that happens, then the coffers run dry. We can't fund public safety. We can't fund public schools. We can't fund other things because if every business is demanding their the taxes they generate to go back into their own pocket, well, we don't have anything to do uh, with the public good after that. Um, we never really established that red line or or thought about where it would lead. And, and that's a really frustrating thing that, that comes out of this. But I think moving forward, I think it'll be easier. This may be a one-off because it is, you know, it is a sports team and there's only so many times they can they can do this, um, you know, to, to weaponize our fan support against us. Um, but yeah, I wish we would have called their bluff a little bit more. Uh, and unfortunately, there is that glow, that, that sentimental feeling that we have of the first time we were in county stadium or the first time I, you know, you took your, take your, your, your nieces and nephews or your kids to, uh, uh, to Miller park or AmFam field, or just throwing the baseball around. And, and that was, that was weaponized. That was weaponized and used against legislators, unfortunately. Let me say that, you know, JFK said, actually Neil Sorensen and uh, Ted Sorensen, the great speechwriter wrote for him. It's his first inaugural uh, we should never negotiate in fear, but we should never fear to negotiate. And it seemed like there was a fear to negotiate here and that you would never buy a house, buy a building. It would be a terrible practice. You've got to be able to you know, know the right time and know what a negotiation even is. There's only one side negotiating. Um, right. I don't right. you know don't if pay, you... You don't pay sticker price on a car, right? Yeah. Well, you never pay what the sticker price is. <laughs> so... My observation about what we learned about power, and I want to, after saying that and whatever you want to say about that, close on what improvements were made because the people who held out are the ones who got any improvements at all, and what improvements might have been gotten relatively easily if there'd been a longer holdout, like till January, because mm -hmm. uh, this was the last Senate session of the year coming back in January. But one is, by talking about Foxconn, talking about Scott Walker's horrendous weed act, which still exists. Um, you're talking about big, extraordinary things, right? Academic development has become the major tool of job creation in this country over the last 40 years. And in my mind, it is a source of corruption because the people who, because it's done without it out of public view with all these grand promises for jobs that are not really tracked clearly and accountably. And there's certainly no tracking that the people who need the jobs the most people locked out of the economy, like, like, like black and brown folks uh, benefit the most. And so in a way, our government is much more corrupt than people believe because all they hear about is, Oh, ribbon cuttings and this nice like, development deal. And look at the thing that's being built. And in a way, all of that, kind of petty graft that is built into our system. We spend $80 billion a year mm -hmm. on quote-unquote economic development, and the research shows for little clear benefit for the for the dollar. In other words, it's far more than you should get per job, right, on the most part. Right. So I believe that kind of set it up. But I want to see, given there was some negotiation, your caucus did hold it up longer than the Assembly, and there was... Uh, therefore, you've got a lot more lobbying. Uh, I want you to close, and we can go. We can go a little over because because it's, it's special edition, and we we use less time with Congressman Pocan. But I was going to say, what did what did what what improvements were made, and what improvements would have been the next ones if we just held out a couple more months and called their bluff? Because 
it's I think you and I could agree it's obvious they were not going to leave if they didn't get it this week. That's absurd. They have a seven, seven more years for a lease and they don't have a place to go. Right, right. No, absolutely. And you're right on the economic development, um, dark magic that that, uh, you know, pays homage to the trickle down um, ideas of, of 40 plus years ago. Uh, we, we did get a little bit more if folks, you know, it's 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 easy to feel like we didn't move all that much. But you want to remember the initial Republican plan was six hundred and thirteen and a half million in public funding uh, with two hundred and two million of that coming from the city and the county. Uh, final deal dropped it to a half a uh, or five hundred million overall, um, including so that's a drop of one hundred and thirteen, and it it also dropped sixty seven and a half million that would have been had to have been paid by the city and the county. Um, the, the 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 brewers chipped in an additional ten million. Man, I wish that was more, but so here we are. Uh, and we did get two additional seats for the city and the county on that governing board, which is you know uh, for the purposes of of representation was also important. Um, so we did get we did get some somewhere. I strongly believe that we could have gotten a ticket tax if we would have had more of an iron stomach in this negotiation, um, just polling, talking to Republicans, talking to Democrats. But there was this belief, well, gosh, I really hope we could have that. But, you know, the brewers are saying no. And I really we really I really hope that we would have been able to put that on the table, amend the bill just with that and then let the brewers sit with it for two months. Um, and then make the decision on them. And frankly, we negotiated, I think, against ourselves, because as much as we felt like there was public pressure on us as legislators, there's a great deal of public pressure on the brewers. Um, if they were talking about leaving, look no further than what happened to Craig Council last week when he announced that he was going to go over to the Cubs. Hometown boy, living in Whitefish Bay, somebody who's really ingrained in the community. I have friends who are his neighbors and think the world of him. Great guy. But how quickly the community turned as soon as he decided to change uniforms. Just think of what that would have looked like if Mark Ananagio started to flirt with the idea of actually leaving and taking the team with them. The public sentiment would have shifted and we would have gotten a much better deal uh, because it would have revealed California centimillionaire Mark Ananagio for what he was, somebody who's trying to extract cash uh, directly from the taxpayers. Um, and I think people would have spoken out a little bit more and it would have emboldened legislators. So uh, lesson learned for for uh, for the next time the brewers come back for cash, which they will. Um, so set your clocks to about 20 years from now when it's seven years before the next lease runs out uh, and make sure we hold our legislators uh, to a higher standard and make sure that they are pushing for a better deal or, or frankly ending some of the worst, most egregious parts of this uh, this lease. Um, enforcing their hand on economic development, ticket tax, um, and actually doing things that 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 help the fans over helping uh, helping the owners. And so you got a huge profitable enterprise which has gained immense value gets gets 190 million dollars more value in terms of equity every year. Um, and they don't pay property taxes. Right. They don't pay a sales tax. It's a, and at no small business, every mom and pop business has to pay that, right? So it just tells you what a unbalanced sweetheart deal there is. Anything happen with the economic development of those acres of parking lots that are there? Because it hasn't had the surrounding development that Fiserv Arena has had with the Bucks and the Deer District. And the the brewers seem to be saying no to that from what I, uh, you know, their president, Rick Schlesinger, in the hearings. Of course, of course, Robert. Anybody who's been to opening day and wanted to hang out in the parking lot a little bit longer than the, fir the first pitch knows that the uh, the the tailgating culture for the Brewers ends with the first pitch because at that point you need to get your butt inside the stadium and spend your dollars there, or uh, you're going to get a visit from our uh, Milwaukee's finest to escort you off the property. Um, so no, they want dollars in their pockets. That's where they. That's the most. Um, if you're the biggest Brewers fan, you 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 transfer all your dollars directly to the Brewers. So no, they do not have. Um, they do not have a, a belief in economic development for their surrounding area. And uh, but we, we have a study committee, a Robin Voss uh, patented uh, study committee that'll be moving forward. Um, so based off the track record of previous Robin Voss study committees. 
I am not going to be holding my breath for that. I think um, it, it, it'll be a wild, a while, while before anything happens around it. And frankly, we've got more parking at the Brewers Stadium than they have at Disney World. So the idea that we can't give up a lot or two to be able to develop something there, or frankly, do anything with it from housing, which is in scarce uh, is in scarcity right now, or putting another business there, I think is is far fledged. We gave that up, and frankly, it's all property tax exempt, so they have no no need. Uh, to do it. And so uh, other than just doing the feeling like they're they're doing the right thing, they have no obligation. Uh, they have no obligation to actually do those things. Thank you for all of that. I hate to uh, to end on a disappointing note. I guess I'll say <laughs> it's why the, that the freeway spur needs to be taken down so you can develop right up to them anyway, but uh, which I know is something that's being discussed. Yeah. Uh, but... Well, I, I'll say I'll end on a positive note, right? Like looking at the end of the seasons, I think of back in in 2021, Christian Yelich struck out um, without even swinging at the end of the season. And, and this time around, as, as painful as it was, you know, uh, William Contreras struck out swinging. He at least was trying on the last the last pitch. And so for us, at least we pushed back. At least we were swinging. At least we were doing stuff this time around. And so I think that's a big difference from where things were in 1995. Um, so I, it's it's not a it's not a sour note. I think we learned a lot, and hopefully people are enlightened to this about economic development not being some some uh, uh, some dark magic that we have to turn off parts of our brain for, uh, but to actually expect the public good when public dollars are being expended um, in any form in any form. I agree, and this is like. The research is the worst ECDOT development. Most ECDOT development has some benefit. This 130 studies, no economic benefit whatsoever. And so, but we were lied to throughout. I mean, what I said was, I know I'm being a little more negative. I said that Major League Baseball that sent their CFO to testify and the president of the Brewers uh, treated uh, this state like a flyover state, rubes that will buy anything. And unfortunately... I mean, let me put it this way: It's good to have real leadership that stands up for people. That is, that is not, that that is that it cannot be treated like flyover by these uh, by these out-of-state billionaires. So, thanks, Chris, for your leadership. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for all you do.